bon it's Zach Langley. Chee chee, I'm not popular. And you're listening to my monthly solo episode. It's just me alone in my room, rambling into the void. It's like a really rainy, dreary day outside, so I spent all my time after work rewatching clips of Nancy Kerrigan getting her knees whacked because I was feeling nostalgic for the rainy days back in Eugene, Oregon. And um, Tanya Harding is a bona fide patriotic Oregonian. So that was like a nice little shot of nostalgia. I'm kind of missing home a little bit. Things are like not amazing in Japan. I guess like COVID is rearing its ugly face into my social life. Like people I vaguely know are like getting fevers and getting sick and they have to go to the hospital and get tested. It's like just when I thought I had banished the phantom of coronavirus from my life, it comes back to remind me that although I could LARP as if it didn't exist for like three months it is um still happening and is going to continue to happen i'm really fucking sick of it i want to go to the club i want to get wasted and drink myself so close into like perfect anti-reality blackness as i like am in a little crop top listening to lady gaga at the club like i just I just crave that, like, rush of death. And instead, the only rush I get of death is watching these people I, like, don't, like, even know that well who just, like, happen to associate with some of my friends, like, start coughing and then off to the hospital the next day from what I hear. So I hope he's doing okay. (laughs) Uh, We also have some fresh new political strife with um, Abe Shinzo calling it quits which honestly if someone had told me that was going to happen this year I would have celebrated what a victory but of course he just gets to replace it with a different politician in the liberal democratic party and he's uh, literally just an Abe clone we get an uglier less charismatic Abe who when asked about his position on LGBT rights expressed caution. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> he expressed hesitant caution is what I read on like Japan Times or something. So yeah, um, I guess I will just continue flapping around in Japan for as long as I can with no spousal visa. <sighs> Work sucks. I hate laboring. I hate COVID. I hate hangovers. I had like a two-day vacation. I had, like, two days off on Monday and Tuesday this week, and, of course, I spent it, like, getting extremely drunk with a few of my friends, and now that I'm 24 and basically a senior citizen by gay standards, I can actually, like, feel my body beginning to reject all of this alcohol. So when I had all of these highballs with my friends and, like, three gin and tonics and a few shots... The next day for me was just totally fucked. (laughs) Like, nothing could be accomplished. I spent hours and hours watching Drag Race clips and playing Smash Bros. on my Switch. So that was um, disgusting. Repulsive. 
very deeply ashamed. Speaking of shame, I got to talk about that on the podcast this month. If you missed my latest episode with River, I would highly check it out. We talked about uh, the myth of class reductionism and the role of shame in contemporary political discourse. It was probably like one of the smartest episodes I've put up so far, and I'm really proud of the conversation we got up there. I also talked to my friend Leo about cuties and pedophilia panic. I talked to Ronald about J-pop for the first time and about Stan Twitter. I talked to Kenna about Katy Perry and uh, someone else. Oh my God, who else did I talk to? Oh yeah, I talked to Justin on actually another really fucking awesome episode. We talked about gay men and their thirst trapping along with that awful new Charlie Kaufman movie, which I fucking hated. And yeah, I think it's, um, I think it was a really productive month for the podcast. I definitely have like a sense of what I want it to sound like now and kind of like my general mission, which is preserving like gay vulgarity and just shitting on everything that I want to shit on. So, so like movie criticism, film criticism, literary criticism, cultural criticism, Basically, as long as I'm, like, espousing my jaded homosexual worldview, I think that the podcast is doing its job. So, yeah, it was a good month for the show, I think. And also, I launched my zine. (laughs) Yay, it sold, like, two copies. (laughs) Thank you to the two people who bought it who were not my parents. And I sent a few, like, extra ones for free. So, I think people should start getting them in their mailbox, actually, by the time this is out tomorrow night. So... Please enjoy it. I worked really hard on my stupid little faggot essay about Carrie. And there's some pictures of hot men. Some surprises. Um, My friend Conan took the pictures and it was really fun. I haven't actually been in drag for like a month or so. Since I can't really go to my bar at the moment. So I did like a digital drag show earlier. And that was fun. But I, I really just like miss like going out with the dolls and having straight men fondle me. So I'm glad I got to at least put on some makeup and terrorize the street outside of my apartment. And the pictures are really hot, actually. They're, like, really hot. So definitely check it out. If you missed out on a free copy, you can uh, grab a copy for just five bucks on Etsy. I still have a lot of extra copies lying around. So those are going to last for a while. And my vision for this zine is that I'm going to put one out every month and then, I don't know, if I ever, like, feel like it would be productive to start a Patreon, I don't I don't really think so. But if I ever do, then I will, like, keep that as a benefit and whoever is, like, subscribed to the Patreon will get the copy for free every month. Maybe some bonus episodes. I think I'd, I'd probably put I'm Not Popular, what you're listening to now, on there as well. So, yeah, that's kind of what September looked like for me. There wasn't, like, even any, like, hot, juicy gossip. There was just, like, a lot of fagging and complete stupidity on Twitter. It was a month of horrible takes. The gays for Biden are really stepping their pussy up, trying to reach maximum levels of annoying and literally succeeding. So that's honestly about all the hot goss we got. Uh, J.K. Rowling, (laughs) like, I don't care to comment. It's not worth it. The only thing I really care about this month, honestly, is the Kardashians getting canceled. It's really an end of an era to pop culture. 
I guess a lot of people might may not know my adoration for Kim Kardashian, but I think she is like truly my favorite capitalist pig. She's so hot. I think she has like a warm heart and like an admirable sense of family that she uses her show to platform as well as just her general brand. And, you know, I think even though Paris Hilton kind of put her on the map, I think that Kim is honestly like the only like image savvy person who is is capable of becoming the kind of monster celebrity that she engineered. And also that like she's using this like later phase of her stardom to uh, discuss issues of mass incarceration and has like liberated a ton of people from prison, I think is just like fucking fierce. So I will be missing the Kardashians. I think that uh, Kim and Courtney take New York is the best season of reality TV of all time in which we get to watch Kim's marriage with Chris Humphreys just break apart at the seams. It's my favorite kind of like gay camp and suffering performance that just really like gets me going. So thank you, Kim. Thank you, Courtney, I guess, even though you were literally one of the worst out of all of them. If I'm going to rank them, I'm going to say Kim is number one. Next, I'm going to say, I'm going to say Chris. Chris is fierce. Next, I'm going to say, you know what? Fuck that. I don't care about anyone else. I only care about Kim and Chris. The rest of them suck. Kylie sucks. Kendall is not a good model. Chloe is literally having an existential crisis that has been protracted since her DUI on season one. And it just gets worse. Like, I feel like she just is, like, God's punching bag. Like, (laughs) between, like, the Tristan whatever drama when uh, he cheated on her with whatever, that Jordan girl. I don't fucking care. That and the DUI and uh, Lamar and that face. It's just... It's just a cosmic joke on her. I kind of feel bad. And Courtney sucks. Hate her brand. I hate that she's characterized as, like, the angel of the show or, like, the only good one. Like, she's the only wholesome down-to-earth one when she's honestly more vapid and performative than a lot of these girls. So, yeah, Kim, you win. Love you. Thank you for your show. Uh, I still, like, leave it on and watch it when I have to burn brain cells and don't want to pay attention to anything. So I think that Kim arguing over a salad about, like, who's having... Christmas dinner where is like going to be a permanent part of like my binaural like <laughs> my binaural wiring <laughs> there's nothing more frightening than like me laughing at like the stupid shit I say when I'm looking at a wall and there's no one in front of me <laughs> yeah actually I guess that's kind of a good segue for one of the first things I want to talk about today which is one of the films I watched let's get into it I feel like the whole world thinks they know me. That's hot. That's hot. That's Sorry, I'm so used to like playing a character that it's like hard for me to like be normal. No one really knows who I am. I'm always. What you just listened to is from the new YouTube documentary, This Is Paris 2020, directed by some bitch. Who fucking cares? Paris Hilton has been like, not doing anything. She's been, like, a DJ and, like, promoting and kind of doing, like, the dregs of, like, post-fame celebrities. I guess everyone's like, oh, she's in her bag. Like, she's making money. She has her brands. But 
just because you have a brand doesn't mean you're famous anymore. I think that, like, the spotlight passed off her because, honestly, like, Paris Hilton just doesn't have, like, a savvy voice or a sort of, like, interesting narrative for people to stay attached to. But yet here she is in a new documentary that purports to analyze, like, her role in creating the super monster of contemporary Instagram celebrity and hashtag famous for being famous stuff. And I think that some of it is like kind of interesting on like a this is a basically like a watch mojo video level like it requires no engagement or critical thinking from the viewer um paris is like acting as someone who's more earnest than she very clearly is so everyone around her is kind of like playing the part of oh this is the first time i've ever talked about this or I've never talked about this before like this. And it's all like a lot of like masturbating over how real it all is for the first time. And um, I will say that some of it is more real and more insightful than like a lot of these sort of biopics, I guess. It's not a biopic, it's a documentary, but you get the point. There's some very telling moments that I think are completely incidental Um, where we get to see, like, kind of how Paris Hilton's fame has shaped her character a little bit. And she pretends to be, like, above the image and the character she's crafted. But she's definitely, like, doing that YouTube vlogging sort of, like, postmodern acting that anyone who is famous on a reality TV show is, like, kind of forced into... I don't know. I just think it didn't, like, really work in portraying, like, her as a real person. And actually, when the movie is at its best is when it, like, slips into that gratifying reality show nonsense. There's a few moments, like, midway through the film where it just literally, like, shows her, like, bickering with her boyfriend. And she's screaming, this is the biggest DJ set of my life. And she's wearing this, like, glimmering paneled dress. She looks so skinny. She's so hot. Like, she's really fucking giving it. And, like, her boyfriend just, like, minorly bumps her laptop. And she's like, oh, my God, I need someone to get. I need someone to take this laptop who will actually not drop it. And her boyfriend is, like, being like, you're, like, fucking annoying, like chill out like why are you acting like this and she's like you can't be doing this to me not and before the biggest set of my life at like some like stupid ass like dj set at like a dumb festival in miami or some bullshit like i don't fucking know i think it was in germany i really do not know she's basically just fighting with her boyfriend and screaming Someone cut off his wristbands. Someone get his fucking wristbands. I can't be doing this before the biggest set of my life. (laughs) And, like, that's honestly, like, the realness I, like, kind of, like, want. And it's, like, the still performative, like, I know there are cameras on me, so let me make drama. Um, And, like, that was honestly, like, the best part of it for me is, like, when it's betraying its general thesis of transcending celebrity or whatever to make an earnest portrait of... The artist is a young woman, Paris Hilton. But then when it, like, slips into these really ham-fisted, obvious reality moments, it's like, oh, like, this is the content that's worth a drop of shit. 
where the whole project fails for me is in casting it as like Paris's confession of trauma. And her trauma is honestly so, so uncompelling. Like she wasn't even like sexually assaulted, which I was really afraid was going to be the narrative of this. And she was like going to come out as like a rape survivor because I think that this whole documentary is really inelegant and inarticulate and not thoughtful at all. So if it had been about an act of sexual violence, like I would have been really disgusted with it because it would have been even more pandering and anti-real. And I don't even like want it to be real. Uh, (laughs) I don't even know what I'm saying. I don't like need it to be actually real. Like I love the anti-reality more, but because it's, you know, broadcasting this image of oh, this is reality, this is honesty for the first time. If it had been making that narrative around an act of sexual violence like we've seen in a lot of, you know, post-Me Too writing and shame exposés that people, that these young women publish as an entrance for their career, having to, like, flagellate themselves and, like, reveal, like, the details of their rape for clicks, you know, I think it's very tragic, and I'm glad that this didn't ultimately end up being about that. However, the actual trauma is so absurd. Like, Paris Hilton was put in a bad teen camp in which, like, she was, like, locked in a room and she compares it to solitary confinement and she talks about the the abusive guards and stuff at this, like, youth rehab program. It's, like, rehab for people who aren't even on drugs. It's just, like, you're a bad kid. Stop it. And, yeah, I mean, like, a lot of these, like, stories from it, I'm like, yeah, like, that's awful. Like, children should not have to go through that. And uh, at the very end of the movie, they um, have Paris, like, get together with the other, like, quote, survivors, unquote, of this, like, honestly kind of, like, banal, like, just vaguely awful program, I guess. And they all, like, reflect on their traumas. I'm like, yeah, like, it sounds bad, but... Like, girl, like, your parents paid, like, tens and tens and thousands of dollars to lock you up there. Like, you should be, like, angry about that. Like, not, like, the fact that they locked you in a room for, like, a day. Like, sorry. (laughs) I just am not compelled by your trauma. Especially when the movie is asking me. It's, like, demanding me to, like, get into it and be like, oh, that's so hard. I really see who Paris is as a person now. It just is, like, very clearly, like, a grappling onto the cultural mode of being a victim. And Paris is like, oh, this is the thing I can be a victim for. I think if it had, you know, been about, like, the violation of her privacy and, like, the violence of that when her sex tape was leaked, like, that would have been so much better. Like, that is traumatic, like... I don't really care about the few months that you were, like, in this, like, youth program for Paris. And even if I did, it's still just, like, attaching yourself to a victimhood cultural role. Because it's the hottest thing to be a victim. It's, like, the only thing that will get you any attention anymore. Because, honestly, I don't think that many people would have watched this unless it, like, had, like, that scandalous victim narrative going for it. And it's just so cringe when they put like these animated pieces into like show how awful it was and it shows like 
a single tear rolling down like this cartoon Paris Hilton's face, like bursting into butterflies as she talks about like her work ethic and dream to be famous. Bitch, like stop. <laughs> no more. I think that Paris Hilton is like an interesting like cultural idol and there's like a lot of interesting like images of her here. I like the idea of like seeing this like kind of like washed up reality star like reconciling like with like what she's doing now. It just never gets there what by putting all of this emphasis and augmentation on the honestly not compelling trauma narrative. I gave this movie two stars. Zach Langley Chichi says, watch it if you want to watch like Paris Hilton, like argue with her boyfriend and then go on a five minute monologue about how every, how every time she breaks up with someone, she has to like delete all the stuff of her Mac and she has a pile of MacBooks in her room. Like if you want to watch that then like go for it for those 20 minutes. But if you want to like have your idea of Paris Hilton destabilized and, confronted skip let's talk about a better movie real contribution to human history go ahead so tell everybody come on you want a kid tell the world what kind of a father do you think you that was from 1983's Brian De Palma-directed Scarface, uh, starring Al Pacino and Michelle fucking Pfeiffer. I love Brian De Palma. I mean, I just, like, went off about Carrie for six pages of my stupid zine. Like, I love Brian De Palma. Something about his vision of America, I think, really gets into that Paglian sex rot like, De Palma is really not afraid of confronting a lot of the bizarre sexual notions that are laid into our culture. And I think he does it really successfully in Carrie with a lot of, like, fear of the feminine and, like, nightmare of the period or, like, whatever. And yet somehow, like, Scarface is just as good. I was blown away about how good this was at truly communicating a lot of these deep sunken fears and sexual hangups in the American dream. Uh, And on top of that, it also has like a really like strong leftist politic going for it too. That really took me aback. I've never, I'd never seen this, although it had been on my watch list for God knows how long. And uh, it finally took my friend, John, who was like showing it to his girlfriend who, Uh, loves American crime movies and stuff. So he was showing it to her. He hadn't seen in like 10 or 15 years and I'd never seen it. And we were both like just honestly shook by it. This movie has my favorite kind of effect that a film can have, which is a physical assault on the body, like the body of the audience. Like this is one of those movies that you watch and you feel it in your gut as it's happening And it's a very unique sort of like propulsive dread, I describe it as. Watching it has a lot of like the ramping tension and the like familiar like three arc structure. It all serves like this really exciting and sort of like thrilling ascent. But you know it's going to end like shit. So while the movie is becoming like more like stimulating as an action and crime film, 
it's also becoming much more frightening and dreadful on the level of this quite thorough character analysis. Uh, if you haven't watched Scarface, I just don't even like think it's like worth describing the plot to you. Like you really should, you really just should prioritize seeing it at your earliest convenience. But I will make a case for like the leftist reading of this film, which initially displays Cuba as like sort of a communist like death generator that from which everyone is fleeing. That's a narrative that we still get today. And slowly that lie is revealed over time as a complete fallacy. And actually like the fear of that leftism animates the character to behave progressively worse over the movie as he declines any sort of like communist aesthetic or lifestyle or engagement in all senses, like from the way he dresses to the people he interacts with to the gaudy construction of his house. Everything that Tony Montana inhabits is like sort of like the capitalist dream. That's obviously a very like superficial reading of the movie, but I think that the actual work of it is that it really puts like the leftist action in Cuba in a really stark relief with the capitalist excess of like 1980s America and the people trying to make it there. De Palma is really fucking talented at making that sort of diptych between the unseen communist Cuba and the overly seen like extremely visual capitalist excess of America He's very good at putting this diptych into, like, a relief that's really unfamiliar. And the images that he uses to sort of draw that comparison, I find are unsettling and unfamiliar. And uh, honestly, so iconic that I think that every movie that addresses, like, capitalism or excess now is completely in debt to Scarface. So some of the things that might seem cliche or trite or like sort of like familiar trope at this point in cinema can kind of be like rooted back to this picture. I really can't emphasize how impressive a lot of these visuals are. Just watching Tony Montana in the bath as it pans up and shows the entire glimmering gold beauty of his ugly house and just him in the middle of it alone in that bath. It's absurd and funny, and it really made me uncomfortable when I watched it. Not to mention Michelle Pfeiffer in this movie. Every single time she walked on screen, I gasped. I literally gasped. I have never seen, like, the woe of a woman attached to, like, these kind of money-making, upper-class nightmare people as beautifully realized as I have here. She has this dejected, quiet sadness while she's taking bumps off her fingers with that fucking amazing hair that is really powerful and really subtle. I mean, De Palma is not known for subtlety, and this movie is certainly no exception, but Michelle Pfeiffer has an incredible amount of nuance to her role. And so when she actually kind of gets a win at the end of the movie and decides to leave Tony, we get a really satisfying narrative arc there that I think a lot of other actresses wouldn't be able to pull off. But the subtlety of her performance and the 
stunning makeup and costuming on her just really sells the image to me. I, like, can't believe that I never, like, had, like, this persona to draw on. Like, if I had earlier, like, she would literally be my entire drag aesthetic, I think. And it's actually funny because my drag name, Chi-Chi, comes from this movie indirectly. Uh, I go by Langley Chi-Chi in drag, Langley being Oscar Langley Soryu's uh, middle name, and Chi-Chi being from the line, Chi-Chi get the yayo from Azealia Banks's Chi-Chi, <laughs> which I knew was a Scarface quote, even though I hadn't seen it. But yeah, I felt that a lot of my gay perspective and my view of drag and glamour and like what's fucking fierce, it like comes from Azealia Banks. So I wanted to indebt that to her while I indebted like my obnoxious character to Asuka, I guess. So uh, I guess I do have a little bit of Scarface in my name, like a lot of it. So I'm glad I finally watched this and could put two and two together. The last thing I want to address in praising this movie is the radical incest portrayal. (laughs) It's not literal. Like, um, Tony is sexually attracted to his sister, yes, but it's, you know, more about his, the protection of innocence. Like, it's used as a symbol Yet all the same, I think that the reason that the image of this kind of like frightening incest in the movie, I think the reason it works so well is because there's an untapped like fear of attraction towards the family and specifically towards the sister in, you know, American culture. A lot of people portray like um, social decadence and like kind of like the end of the end times or whatever as a shedding of social values so that things like gay sex and incest start taking up more prominence in the daily social life. I don't like really agree with that line of thinking, but I do think that there's a lot of anxiety that, you know, masculine men feel around like their female siblings. And it's a topic that gets addressed even less than like the mother-son incest narrative like I can't think of many movies off the top of my head that dare to suggest it like let alone explicate it to the degree of horror and sheer intensity that this does the final scene when she's uh, she being Tony Montana's sister is like walking right towards Tony Montana and like shedding her clothes as she begs him to fuck her was honestly like the most high tension and exhilarating cinematic moment I've had all year. So check it out. Scarface is a very quietly communist film as it's a very body and over the top action crime character analysis disaster night terror. Zach Lee Chichi says four and a half stars. Watch it. I also read some books this month. Um, I don't really feel like doing a book report right now or like really like getting into deep analysis. So I kind of am just going to speed through these, I think. And I'm also trying to keep this episode short because I ended up rambling about United Red Army for like 45 minutes last time. And even after cutting it, it was still like an hour long episode. I would prefer if these were 40 minutes. So uh, we're going to see if I can accomplish that by sort of trimming my chatter about these two books. I read, I'm going to butcher this bitch's name, I don't care, Alfred Yelenek. Actually, I think I got it right. 
I'm German, so I should be able to pronounce it, but um, I'm very out of touch with my culture. <laughs> my German roots are very buried in my genetics, so I, I don't really know much about German or pronunciation or anything like that. So, yeah, but I read Lust by um, Jelinek. It's my second novel from her. I read The Piano Teacher last year after watching the um, Michael Haneke. I just butchered his name, too. After watching his uh, film adaptation of it, loved it. Wanted to see, like, what kind of book it could have been based off of. And I found The Piano Teacher to be a really startling, like, look at the animal sex fear that we all have. It kind of, like, takes, like, the mesh of society and starts pulling it back. So, like, the creepy, disgusting sex obsessions that we all have is, like, kind of brought to the surface in a narrative that I think is honestly very empathetic and honest towards its subject, while also depicting her do all sorts of depraved things, cutting up her pussy with a razor, uh, peeing on a car to get off, like watching people have sex, like begging your piano student to beat the shit out of you, stabbing yourself with a knife when he rejects you. I love a lot of like the power dynamics in that novel i think it's a really fun book while also being totally shattering and disgusting and lust is published later i believe than piano teacher and it kind of shows like that sex fear in full overdrive along with a depiction of um sexual morris as a engine of capitalism and basically Yelenik is using um, like this depraved sex debauchery as a larger analogy for a industrialized corporate state. Uh, the narrative is not very present at all. It's narrated in really loose, uh, vague, and broad language. There's no dialogue, I believe, and it tells the story of the wife of a paper factory owner who um, is subjected to, like, sexual... God, I don't even know what to call it. I can't come up with, like, a fun, faux, academic way to describe it. He just, like, brutally fucks the shit out of her every day, doesn't allow her to bathe so he can, like, smell her pussy juices. This is really vulgar. Sorry, everybody. But it is a disgusting sexual relationship full of, like, abuse and... Um, it's very complicated. It gives her more agency than just, like, her, like, being endlessly, like, raped or something. Like, it gives her, like, more agency and, like, a role in their sexual relationship. Um, but she's kind of had her identity obliterated by her role as a mother in this capitalized family unit. And when she meets kind of, like, an up-and-coming politician, when she's drunkenly walking home on a highway, she, um decides to move all of her identity onto uh, this new figure. And uh, her desire for him, I think, is very unsettling. It's defamiliar. It's really creepy. And even while these characters are honestly just large archetypes, they are so archetypal and so descriptive of the general condition that they feel honestly really close it's like the broadness actually gives them like a proximity to the reader um basically it doesn't work out for anyone involved and she doesn't get to have this up-and-coming politician she's even more traumatized and disgusted by her like 
obliterating relationship with her husband. And she decides to completely annihilate her role as a mother by brutally murdering her child in the last two pages of the book. So yeah, really sunny, fun beach read. And I thought this was a really articulate book. Very interesting. Very difficult. Um, It's a short book. It's like 200 pages, but it took me a long time just to parse through the language, which is really dense. Lots of different ways of describing penises. I think there is one that says meat engine. Yeah, so on the notion of meat engine alone, Zachary Chichi says four stars. Check it out. But I like The Piano Teacher more. It's like a better novel with like more real people. This is more like a treatise or like a manifesto in a lot of ways. And I think that some of the communist argument at the soul of this book is like a little surface level. But this book was published like 30 years ago. So I got to give it props for uh, being so successful when that kind of literature was like not even existent yet. So now we have stuff like with Sally Rooney and conversations with friends where like the underbelly of corporate evil that we all have to live beneath is much more obvious and much more like sanitized but i like that this book is dirty and not afraid to be disgusting i also read joan didion's play it as it lays and uh i have read plenty of didion when i was a creative writing minor in undergraduate and i never really attached to any of her work But I also think that lit professors and creative writing professors kind of pick her most boring stuff because they want to pick like the things that show beautiful, sparkling language and craft. But this book succeeds for me because um, it's not really about like the beautiful, sparkling language. It really is just the depiction of a faded kind of B-movie actress who has been tossed around by the men in her life. And it shows her at her wallowing kind of despicable evil she's not always sympathetic she is a really challenging figure this mariah to um see as like a saint or a paragon she is honestly like a bitch like she sucks she's rude she makes the wrong choices all the time and for that i find her a compelling realistic and very close character and this book is kind of like a fragmented Like, look at her as she goes through um, an abortion and she's reconciling with her role in all these relationships and kind of the cold, ice-like stagnation of the void that she just wallows in outside her pool every day. Uh, Didion writes, humanity reclining in its deck chairs. And I think it's a very accurate image of the sort of 70s nothingness that a lot of women experienced so there's a lot of like quiet aching sadness in this it isn't always like at the forefront and I like a lot of the quieter ways that it manifests and I think overall it is very patient and despite being critical of its protagonist and like letting the audience like differ from her and disagree from her it's um it's sort of inevitable for you to like realize what she stands for which is like this feminine woe and to see its jagged edges and the challenge of uh, reconciling it with our culture. I also think that this book is really good at depicting gay men. It's not afraid to say faggot um, in a way that's like not hateful. It's like just the way that people communicated with gays in the 70s. So 
I think that the gay characters here, even though um, they're kind of, like, subjected to the cliche, like, gay death trope, I think that they're also very patiently realized and made into actual humanity. So I think that this book is not maybe essential, but I do think it is a very impressive depiction of this kind of femininity that hasn't been replicated really outside of like stuff like Otessa Moshfeg in My Year of Rest and Relaxation, which I would also highly recommend. So yeah, I'm going to say like four stars. Zach Langley Chichi says, check it out. I don't really have a lot of music or anything to talk about. Um, I've basically just been listening to Jesse Lanza over and over again, which has been the case since uh, all the time her new record came out. I think it's very spacious and sad. And um, despite not having a lot of like comprehensible lyrics or having like a direct narrative through line, it leaves like just the right amount of space for like you to insert yourself. So these songs have grown really close to me in the past few months. Really enjoying it. I'm just checking my letter, not my letterbox, my last FM to see if there's anything else interesting I've been listening to, but like not really. <laughs> uh, Burn Your Fire for No Witness by Angel Olsen. I guess I was feeling a little out of it and like down in the dumps, so I wanted to like commiserate with her. Uh, she just put out a new album that's quite good. It's like a the original sessions of last year's album, All Mirrors, that she put out that's kind of like the stripped back version of it. I think it's it's lovely. Uh, some David Bowie. I'm still listening to Young Americans. Like, nothing really that new or exciting since I had to spend so much time re-listening to Smile by Katy Perry over and over again for the pod. So, yeah, sorry. No music to talk about right now. Maybe next month. Yeah, so speaking of next month, it's October. So I'm going to kind of have, like, um a few horror-related episodes. And also because the October issue of the zine was horror. So yeah, I'm going to talk about a bunch of horror movies and scary movies that I love. I think I'm going to watch um, Hello, Mary Lou, Prom Night 2 and uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2. Some of my favorite sequels of all time. And do an episode about that with my friend John. I'm going to talk about Silent Hill. I'm going to do a Silent Hill episode that's coming out. And before all that kicks off and I really get into horror... I'm going to talk to, I think, my friend Amina Banks, a really fucking talented musician, about uh, something I'm going to keep private for now, but be excited. And I think some Bjork discourse is also coming at you. And not just like 10 seconds of me rambling about Utopia on the <laughs> on a completely unrelated episode, but like a real, a real journey into Bjork. So if you're a fan of hers, uh, get into it. Be excited. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to wrap it up because I'm bored of talking to myself and I have to go see my boyfriend and play with my cat and eat gyoza. So, yeah, that's all. I don't think any of you listen to this, but if you do, I love you. Thank you. Ja, mata next.